namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So far during this range retreat, I've been talking about (coughs) many of the skillful means uh, to develop the mind in deep meditation. Uh, Talking about (coughs) the the ways uh, to fully develop the the Eightfold Path. Uh, Those ways which I've been talking about uh, skillful means to uh, make the mind bright and clear, to calm the mind, in order that we can overcome these five hindrances, so that we can see the Dhamma very clearly. And it's, uh, it's a shame that because the five hindrances are very powerful and uh, very deep, that it's so difficult to overcome them that because that they reign supreme in one's mind that we have not a chance of seeing the true Dhamma. <coughs> as long as there are five hindrances there in the mind there is no possibility of seeing the true Dhamma, the Saddhamma. When the five hindrances are there it's very possible, very easy to see things which aren't true Dhamma. It's very easy for the mind to concoct theories and ideas which one can justify quite easily towards oneself. There are so many views and ideas in this world. However, the only way you can find out of which of those views is correct and true is to find some way of overcoming the five hindrances so you can see clearly. And very much the job of the the practice is the overcoming of these five hindrances, just temporarily, in order, as it were, to give a gap between the clouds so the, the moon or the sun can shine forth in all its purity and truth. Obviously, that gap between the clouds <coughs> will only come <coughs> for short periods of time at first. But this is what one has to work towards, to find that first gap between the occurrence of the five hindrances so that you can truly see the Dhamma hiding behind, as it were, the clouds of the hindrances. That's why they're called hindrances. Obviously that once one has seen the Dhamma through that cloud of hindrances for the first time, once one knows what the Buddha was teaching, then it becomes easier (coughs) to overcome the hindrances in future. 
and little by little one will dispel those hindrances until there's no clouds at all in the sky, until the, the full moon, the beautiful Dhamma, shines clearly at all times without break. The hindrances have been abandoned once and for all, and then you will know that the job has been done. So much of this path is learning how to abandon these five hindrances. First of all, just getting that first break in the clouds. But that is just so important for the path. I prefer teaching about the path rather than about what the mood looks like, simply because <coughs> that when one teaches what the moon looks like, what the Dhamma is, if one hasn't seen that for oneself, one will always disbelieve, misinterpret, even argue. It's much more useful talking about the path, the ways of practice. And this evening I wanted to bring up uh, one of the little suttas, uh, which is again one of the favourite ones of mine, which uh, puts the practice in yet another light. Not a different way of practice than what I've been teaching so far, but another way of looking at this practice which brings up some important factors of the path which one should be developing. The particular sutra I'm going to be just uh, referring to is in the, the, t- the tens of the Anguttara Nikaya, number 76. It's a causal sequence which goes from <coughs> uh, the abandoning of Ahiri, Anotapa, and Pamada. I'll explain those words later on in a few moments. Right to the way to the abandoning of old age, suffering and death. The path, as I've been trying to make clear throughout this whole range retreat, is a process. It's basically nothing to do with you. As soon as you let go of this doer, this controller, this interrupter, this troublemaker, and you all know what I mean by that troublemaker, the more quickly and smoothly will this process develop. (coughs) But this particular sutta shows in this causal sequence a very beautiful number of of stages uh, which uh, happen quite clearly, quite obviously, for the meditator on the path to enlightenment. And it also brings to the fore the fact that this is a process which is run by cause and effect. That there is certain causes which you have to generate in order to get the effects. And those effects generate more causes. And so the ball rolls along like the the wheel of the Dhamma rolling on all the way to Nibbāna. When last week we chanted the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, the first turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, this was what was actually happening. When the Lord Buddha taught that sermon, he set in motion a cause and effect sequence which was unstoppable. A cause and effect sequence where having put that seed of Dhamma into the world, it would have to generate and regenerate and regenerate 
taking countless beings to Nibbana, to Parinibbana, throughout the centuries. And that seed is still there. <coughs> so this is a causal sequence and one should pay attention to the different factors in this causal sequence because it can highlight uh, parts of one's practice, parts of one's psychological makeup, which is hindering the further development of the path. And it points to some important factors which one should uh, contemplate very carefully. In this particular sutta, the Buddha said that someone who has <coughs> no hiri otapa, hiri and otapa are the, called the guardians of the world. Hiri is the sense of shame. Otapa is a fear of the karmic consequences of one's bad actions of body, speech and even mind. The shame comes about when one has broken one's precepts, when one has misbehaved, or even if one has been lazy and not used the alms food of the, the people who come here, not used the, the huts which have been built at great effort and expense, not used the robes which are covering your body, for the purpose for which they were designed and given to you. The person who is lazy, who is not putting forth effort, who is a backslider, will for certain feel shame. To feel shame does not mean feeling guilty, does not mean feeling depressed. The level one should aspire towards is as long as in the evening when one goes to bed, if one realizes one has tried one's very best that day, then you know that you haven't been lazy. You've done the best you can with the body, with the mind, with the defilements you have. That should make you content. If you feel you haven't done the best, then there should be a sense of shame coming up. And that shame should not be allowed to give rise to guilt, to self-hatred, because such shame is different than guilt. Guilt wants to punish. Guilt wants to deny one happiness through further progress along the path. Guilt is not a guardian of the world. Guilt is just a guardian of the defilements, keeping them strong succoring them, nurturing them. Remorse, on the other hand, or shame, is something which has seen the laziness, the defilements, and resolves to try harder next time, not to fall into those same traps. Keep forgiving yourself your faults, but not just to let them go completely. Forgive, them, forgive yourself so you don't allow punishment to arise and at the same time resolve to try harder next time to be more mindful, to be more careful. The hiri is the, the sense of shame which comes up. The otapa is the, the fear of the karmic consequences. For those who have either faith or understanding, wisdom of the Buddha's teachings of the Dhamma, who have understanding of the law of karma, 
does she realize just how fixed and strong and firm is such a law. It is a law which is unlike human laws, cannot be corrupted. It works relentlessly. It, as it were, rewards the good deeds, the kind deeds, the forgiving deeds, the soft deeds, the warm deeds, the pure deeds. And it causes problems and suffering as a result of the unskillful acts of body, speech and mind. For someone who knows the law of karma, that otapa becomes a very strong guardian of your body, speech and mind. You would not do anything unwholesome. Why would you do something which hurts and harms yourself and others? It becomes completely senseless to create more pain and suffering in yourself and in others. Pramada is the heedlessness. The heedlessness of the mind, the heedlessness of the acts of body, speech and mind. Almost like the carelessness. And this is where this sequence starts. Without giving up the shamelessness, the fearlessness in the sense of not caring about the law of karma, and the sloppiness of heedlessness, you cannot go further to give up the next stages of the path. The next things which one has to give up is the lack of respect, the being hard to receive admonition, the dawachasata, and having bad friends. It is from the shamelessness, the lack of fear of moral consequences, because of the, the carelessness of Pramada, that people do develop the disrespect. The disrespect to those worthy of respect, whether, <coughs> whether they are monks or nuns, whether they are teachers, whether they are Buddha statues, whether they are parents. And such people become hard to speak to, hard to admonish, hard to teach. I remember as a young monk, and Ajahn Chah would ask, you know, your teacher, now how was Bhamawangsa the last rains retreat? How was Yanadamma the last rains retreat? And when your teacher said, oh, they're easy to teach, then Ajahn Chah would be very satisfied and happy. You wouldn't be so concerned with, with how far you've developed, but just the very fact that you are easy to teach, that you'd listen, you'd be respectful, you'd be open to admonition, and you wouldn't be someone who's hard to speak to, that he would be very happy. Being easy to speak to, easy to admonish, easy to teach, is an important part of this path, as is having good friends, not hanging out with scallywags. Associating with the wise is an important part of this path. And for someone who is disrespectful, who is hard to speak to, who is, has bad friends, there's no way they can develop faith. There's no way they can develop the reverence, respect, and there's no way they can overcome the idleness 
in order to develop the energies of the mind. So only when a person uh, is respectful, only when someone is easy to speak to, and when they associate with good friends, can one expect faith in the Dhamma to arise. And I gave a talk about the importance of such faith. Not just faith in the Dhamma, but faith in one's own abilities to achieve. Or rather, instead of saying faith in one's own abilities, just faith in the process. Because it's not really up to you at all. Whether you are great or useless or somewhere in between, it does not matter because this is a process which happens in spite of all your ideas and conceits. I was always very impressed in the Buddha's explanation of conceit. I am better, I am worse, I am the same. I'm great, I'm useless, I'm about average. All of those are conceits. They're defilements coming from the sense of self, from ego. And even the lack of self-esteem is just a play of the ego. The ego asserting itself to gain attention. Like a little baby crying, I hurt, give me attention. So the faith, the confidence in the path, the confidence in the process, the confidence in the Buddha, these all have to come as a result of respectfulness and being easy to, to teach. Once there is that softness, that openness in the mind, to be able to receive admonition, there will be the openness to receive teachings. <coughs> Once you hang out with good friends, you'll be inspired by those friends and that will again open the mind up to see things in a different way. A lot of time in the Western world, people praise open-mindedness. But there's so few people who have such an open mind. Because <coughs> their mind is closed by their defilements, by their views, by their cravings, by their sense of self. It's only through that softness of the mind, especially through the power of faith and confidence, it's one of the things that one discovered being with such a teacher like Ajahn Chah. That he had such faith and confidence in that teacher that he could say all sorts of things to you. It's the sorts of things which you never take from a fellow monk. Sometimes quite hard and biting things, but you take them because if you didn't really know they were true, you suspected they were true. He can't be neath the defilements and hindrances. Because of the faith, you allow those teachings to go in. <coughs> this is coming soon. It's so important to be able to be open to such teachings. And that openness can only come through the development of faith, through the development of respect, and through the abandonment of idleness. The idleness is just the person who doesn't want to go to the effort of changing their views or the changing the way of doing things. So often, whenever we change our habits, it takes so much effort. It's just so easy to do things in the same old way. 
<coughs> that's why I even tell lay people. When you get up in the morning and you start brushing your teeth, which side of your mouth do you start on? Start the opposite side tomorrow morning. You usually start on the left side of your mouth, start on the right. If you usually start above, start below. Or start in the middle. If you start the front, start the back. To do something different requires effort, and that effort generates mindfulness. Don't always be a creature of habit. Don't always just listen just to the old ways of doing things. Otherwise, you're dying. You're dying to the Dhamma, you're dying to alertness, to energy, to mindfulness. That's why it's good to change habits. And that opens a mind to seeing things anew. The changing of habits is another way of developing just more mindfulness, more alertness. People who always sit in the same place. People who always do things the same way. People who have routines. There are people who don't need much mindfulness. It's like being an automatic pilot. And without that mindfulness, one just goes into dullness. In the same way, even when you meditate, be careful not to meditate always the same way, in the same place. Sometimes, that just changing something as little as instead of putting the right leg on top of the left leg, put the left leg on top of the right leg for a change. See what happens. Because you're doing something different, the mind can't go on the automatic. More mindfulness, more alertness has to be there. You're more awake. And with that mindfulness, that alertness, you can overcome the habits of the mind. You can overcome those (coughs) uh, deep habits, the deep conditionings of hindrances and defilements. It's the person who just does things the same old way again and again without mindfulness who gets nowhere and wastes so much time. How often is it that your, your meditation, the same old problems come up again and again and again? It becomes like a habit. Try changing the process, changing the way of doing things. And you'll find just by developing the ability to do things differently, you'll be giving yourself more opportunity to find different ways of overcoming the hindrances and the defilements at all stages of the meditation. If it just doesn't work going to the left, then go to the right, go to the middle, go up, go down. (coughs) Be resourceful by not being a creature of habit. And this is what happens when you develop the sense of faith and it's a sense of respect, wadanya, and some energy. And it's only through such factors you can overcome the restlessness, the lack of restraint, and the bad sila. Here we're coming to some of those factors of (coughs) meditation and practice 
of which you are more familiar with. Restlessness, lack of restraint and bad sila. You see this is all coming in this causal sequence from the lack of faith, the lack of respect and idleness. If you have restlessness in your practice, you cannot sit for very long and when you do sit you cannot get stillness. If you find it hard to restrain the mind and restrain the body from eating too much, speaking too much, sleeping too much, you find your precepts are not perfect. It says here because it's from a lack of faith, a lack of respect and idleness. So seeing the causal connections there, if we want to have some peace from restlessness, if we want to have some restraint in the mind, if we want to have an experience of bliss of the purity of conduct, and we should make sure that we cultivate faith, that we cultivate respect and we abandon idleness. You see, even this, this cultivation of respect and is an important part of this practice. Now we have a hierarchy of respect in Buddhism, in monasticism, and sometimes that we wish to overcome that hierarchy of respect and not to show the, the gratitude, the reverence, the respect to the one who is senior to us, to the teras, mahateras, the teacher. And this is said quite clearly in a sutta such as this, is a hindrance to getting peace, to getting restraint and to getting good precepts from respectfulness and from faith. We can do all these things. The reason why respectfulness and faith is important again is because we have to cultivate something which comes from outside of us. We have to cultivate new conditioning because the old conditioning is not good enough. The old conditioning will just keep us in the same old habits and <coughs> mental patterns and ways of looking at things that have caused us so much suffering in the past. We need to get out of that somehow. And we can only get out of that with the help of somebody else. And that's why the next factor is one of my favorites. When there is some freedom from restlessness, when there is some restraints and there's good precepts, then you can start to appreciate the value of the areas. These are the noble ones, the stream winners, once returners, non-returners, arahats. Those members of the Sangha who have developed enough to be able to see the Dhamma and be practicing the Dhamma. If you haven't given up the restlessness, the lack of restraints and bad precepts, you just cannot appreciate the Arya Sangha. This says, but having given up those things, developed faith, developed respect, developed energy, developed a, at least a little bit of peacefulness, 
restraint and good precepts, then they say that you will want to associate with the Aryas. You'll want to hear their teachings and you will give up one of the most my popular factors in this, you'll be able to give up the fault-finding mind. Just the love, the delight in associating with noble beings, the delight in listening to their Dhamma is part of the causal sequence leading to enlightenment. The reason is that without that seed from the Aryas, carrying the yeast, as it were, from the Lord Buddha, there's no way that the bread can rise. <coughs> you do need an input from the Lord Buddha, from the Arya Sangha, in order to break that conditioning. I've been talking uh, to a few people about the way that conditioning occurs explaining it in terms of the whippalazas, the perversion of the cognitive processes of views, perceptions and thoughts. Wherever we start in that cycle of three, of views, perceptions and thoughts, once we start, the cycle goes round and round and round. We start with a view. Because we have a particular view, we will perceive according to that view. That view will filter out perceptions which don't fit in and it will <coughs> encourage and even amplify those perceptions which fit in with the view. From those perceptions we build our thoughts. And those thoughts again, because of the way the view is working, will always be in accord with our views, justifying them, and thereby making those views even stronger. If you are angry at someone or angry at yourself, that starts your view. They're hopeless or I'm hopeless. Once you have that view, you will perceive accordingly you'll see all the other person's faults or your own faults and inadequacies. And the perceptions will be true. It's only you're just seeing a part, a fraction of the whole truth and reality. Your view is filtering out many of the perceptions and only allowing those which justify the view. And from those perceptions of inadequacy, of ill will towards another person or towards oneself, you will think accordingly, I am hopeless, I am terrible, I can't do this. They are cruel, they are selfish, they are lazy. And thereby you will justify the abuse. And so this whole process goes round and round and round. Views building perceptions, perceptions building thoughts, thoughts justifying views. This is called awija, delusion, ignorance. And this is why the mind cannot even see what is useful for itself or useful for others.
It's why it cannot see the deeper dharmas of anatta, non-self, anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, and suffering. Why it cannot see the dhamma? Because its views will not allow it to. So this is the the way that delusion works. You see, the mechanics behind it. And the only way you can break that cycle is to have a view, a perception, a thought coming from outside. And not just any old view, perception or thought, but one provided by those who have actually seen the Dhamma. It's only with the intervention of the Aryas that this whole cycle can stop. It's only, as I said in the Salaika Sutta, it's only a person who's standing on dry ground can pull out someone who's stuck in the mud, stuck in the swamp. If you're stuck in the swamp, you can't pull yourself out. You do need the help of someone standing on dry land. The person standing on dry land is the Arya, the noble one. And so there has to come a time in one's practice and it's a good stage to know one is at in one's practice that one wishes to associate with the Aryans. One delights in the Aryans' teachings. If that is happening for you, then you should be very confident that you are making very good progress on this path towards enlightenment. And if you want to know what the, who the Aryans are, there's one Aryan you should have full confidence in. And that is the Lord Buddha. And those teachings are in the suttas. And as a result of the previous restraint, good precepts, you can also give up. And this is also in this factors, the fault-finding mind. For those of you who have been fortunate to have visited the Kuba Ajahn in Thailand, many of them being Aryas, you'll notice just how so many of them were not fault-finding, but they were encouraging. Sometimes you would do things wrong. Sometimes they would just forgive you straight away. They wouldn't be picky on the small little things, but they would be more concerned for the greater welfare, the things which really were important. So often the fault-finding mind is a characteristic of the Western practitioner. A characteristic because it has been uh, developed in our training as youths at school and universities always finding fault with things, including finding fault with ourselves. Going to the extreme of finding fault with the meditation subjects, even finding fault with the nimitta, and thereby blocking off the, the, the possibility of deeper progress into the powerful meditations and the seeing of the Dhamma. If you wanted to focus on one aspect of the Dhamma, 
which will give you great benefit. You can encourage to focus on the fault-finding mind. Each one of you know that fault-finding mind and each one of you knows the suffering which it causes. Each one of you knows just how much time the fault-finding mind wastes. You can always find fault with anybody, with anything. People would find fault with the Lord Buddha because of that fault-finding mind. So instead of developing the fault-finding mind, we have to overcome that. It's overcome with the previous developments of restraint, good precepts, faith, respect. Those are the sorts of things which can overcome the fault-finding mind. You have enough confidence and faith in something to follow it rather than destroy it. You have enough respect to take it seriously rather than find out all its weaknesses. You have enough restraint to not allow the mind to go in those paths of fault-finding. Instead you have these other traits of like love for the Aryan teachings, or love to go and see the Aryas, not to sort of pick them apart. And you have the love for the Arya Dhamma inside of you, not to pick apart the beautiful effect of keeping precepts, not to pick apart the beautiful effect of a peaceful abiding in a quiet monastery, not to pick apart the beautiful effects of meditation. With that little bit of faith and respect for that which is truly worthy of respect, the quiet states inside, instead of finding fault with the meditation, you develop the opposite of fault finding, which is that contentment. Finding fault means you cannot stay where you are. Finding fault gives you business to do. Finding fault makes you destroy. Instead of finding fault, we suspend the critical mind and instead develop the mind of faith and contentment. That mind of faith and contentment can stay with the breath, not finding fault with it can stay with the breath and not finding fault with it, actually can enjoy the breath. Not finding fault with the breath can develop contentment with the breath. So much so that one can stay there, stay as long as one likes. How much of our life has been spent on the move, moving from monastery to monastery, hut to hut, moving from moment to moment because of a lack of contentment, because of the fault-finding mind. That fault-finding mind above many things is what keeps pushing us from place to place, never allowing us to rest, never allowing us to be still, 
never allowing us any moment of stability. Wherever we get that fault-finding mind. In the Lord Buddha's simile, which Ajahn Chah used to repeat very often, of the dog with mange. The dog with mange who would stay under the sun to try and get rid of the itch. And when he couldn't get rid of the itch, would go under a rock. The itch would still be there, would go into the forest, would go into the village, would go into the water, wherever that dog went, there would still be the itch. It's the same with the fault-finding mind. That's a mange on the mind. It's a defilement. Wherever you go, that fault-finding mind will go with you. It's like the dog with the mange. Once that fault-finding mind is overcome, there's a chance of stability, of contentment. There's a, a, a chance for the next stages of the, this process, which is sati sampajanya. So only, and this is what it says in the sutta, only for a person who loves associating with the Aryas, who loves hearing their teachings, and who hasn't got a fault-finding mind, only those can develop mindfulness, can develop understanding and can have a peaceful mind. The opposite of this peaceful mind is the vikapa chitta. So, and the peaceful mind, when the mind has not vikapa, that means samadhi. From sati, sampachanya and samadhi. These come as a result of all that's gone before, in particular the love of seeing and hearing the teachings of the, of the Aryans and the lack of a fault-finding mind. Sometimes that we talk about mindfulness, developing mindfulness, cultivating mindfulness, begs the question of how do we cultivate mindfulness? How do we cultivate this sampajanya, this wisdom quality which knows what mindfulness should allow into the mind and what mindfulness the gatekeeper should keep away. What's in our interest and what's against our interest. This is the job of this sampajanya, sometimes translated as clear comprehension. How do we develop mindfulness and clear comprehension? And how do we develop samadhi? You develop it according to this sutta by associating with Aryans, giving up the fault-finding mind, developing faith, restraint, good precepts, respect, easy to admonish. All of these qualities are necessary for the development of sati, sampachanya and samadhi. So if the mindfulness is weak, if the samadhi is still weak, then check out these qualities which went before, especially things like fault-finding mind for samadhi. It's only through contentment one can get samadhi. With fault-finding, the mind goes all over the place, completely distracted. For those of you on retreat, 
be careful, extremely careful of that fault-finding mind. That can waste many, many days. And only, and this is where the past starts to really come to life, only when this sati, sampajanya, samadhi, only then can there be proper attention this yonisa manasikara, the work of the mind which goes to the source. Only then can there be the following of the right path and can there be the lack of mental sluggishness. Here we're getting to those factors which develop true insight and understanding that part of the path where we start to see the Dhamma which we've heard from the Aryas in the past, which we've had faith in, which we're now about to experience for ourselves. They always say that the seeing of the Dhamma comes as a result of this work of the mind which goes to the source of things. This proper attention and looking deeply into something but to be able to look deeply into something, you need this, not this sluggishness of mind, but this brightness of mind. The mind which can actually hold something in front of itself for long enough to truly dive into it and see its true nature. When the mind is sluggish, it's very difficult to really focus on anything. It's very difficult to understand anything. All we get is the superficial notions born of our conditioning. This is why when you can hold something in front of your mind for long periods of time, hold it not moving, only then can you, f- can you really allow the mind to fully investigate, to fully uncover its deeper meaning. I'm sure many of you have seen me give that (coughs) example of holding up something in front of people and asking what it is. Holding up a stick and all they say it's a stick and they don't look any deeper because they don't hold it in their mind long enough. Here what one needs to do is to have enough samadhi enough sustained attention to take up something like the Rupa Kanda or Vedana Kanda or Sanya Kanda, Sankara or Vijnana Kanda. Instead of having these views about what consciousness is and these ideas born of the defilements which give you some idea or some concept or some misinformation that this vijnana can somehow be me, mine, impermanent, essential, cosmic or whatever. Hold up consciousness to the mind. Hold it up there and keep it there. Keep it there sustaining the attention on the jitter. until all that you ever imagined it to be, thought it was, completely disappears and you can start to unravel its real meaning. This Yoni Samanasi Kara, 
which goes to the heart of things. It takes time to do that. You can't have a sluggish mind, you need a bright mind, a stable mind, a mind which can take something and see into it very deeply. A very supple mind. A few people who have been getting reasonable meditation, I've been asking them to play with the the mind which is supple. When a mind is supple as a result of meditation, deep meditation, it is like a well-trained animal. You just tell it to do something and off it goes and it does it without any resistance. And it's wonderful and fascinating to see one's own mind be able to do such things. In deep meditation or after a deep meditation, you just go and tell it to hold something in the mind and it just does it without any trouble or difficulty whatsoever. You tell that mind to go off into the past and get an early experience of your childhood or even better, an early experience of your previous life. You just go and tell the mind and off the mind does, off the mind goes and does what you say it. This is a mind which is supple. You do need that sort of mind, not the sluggish mind, but the mind which has been empowered, softened, made workable by the power of samadhi, by the power of mindfulness, by the power of, of, of uh, comprehension, sati-sampajanya. And then your mind can start to do things. It's why that in this monastery I encourage samadhi so much because samadhi is the path. That's actually said somewhere, samadhi mago, asamadhi kumago. I think uh, someone will be able to tell me where that quote is, I wrote it down somewhere, it just comes to mind. That samadhi is the path, that means. Lack of samadhi is the wrong path. And because that samadhi is so necessary, we cultivate it until we realize for ourselves what I'm talking about. One realizes the mind after samadhi can actually do things, can hold things, it's not sluggish anymore. This particular factor in this causal sequence says if the mind is sluggish, if there's no work of the mind, going back to the source, if there's no samadhi, you cannot do you cannot reach the next stages in this causal sequence. And the next stages of this causal sequence is abandoning Sakaya Ditti, abandoning Wichikichaya, abandoning Silabhata Paramasa, abandoning the first three fetters, achieving stream winning. Here it's telling you what you need to become a stream winner. What you need to become an Arya. What you need to overcome the fetter of self-view. The view that somewhere in here there's some essence of me, a self. To overcome the last bit of doubt in the enlightenment of the Buddha, the purity of his teachings, the value of the Aryan Sangha and the last bit of wrong view about the path 
thinking can just be attained just through practices and precepts. You can see from what's gone so far all the necessary factors for this path. Things as simple as Hiri and Otapa, things as simple as respect, faith, love of the Aryans, things as simple as Sati, Sampajanya and Samadhi. All of these things working together. Things as simple as letting go, discouraging the fault-finding mind. Each one of those negative qualities talked about so far is a huge obstacle for the attainment of stream winning. This is why the Lord Buddha taught in this way. Without these earlier qualities being abandoned, you cannot develop these further qualities. Without abandoning all that's gone so far, you cannot abandon these first three fetters. These first three fetters are all concerned with wrong view. The wrong view that there's a self in here somewhere the wrong view that of doubt, the wrong view that the path can be attained just through precepts and observances. This is where the view is first purified. That vicious cycle of uh, whippalazas, the vicious cycle of views, perceptions and thoughts, this is where it's cut and broken and unraveled. This is where dependent origination is unraveled. The insight, the understanding, the perfection of right view into anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's at this place, this spot that stream winning occurs. And it's at this place, at this spot where the path turns. The path turns, instead of reinforcing samsara, it turns into unraveling it, loosening the bonds, and ending all of this. It's only through the, the, the perfection of those three things, the abandoning of the fetters, the first three fetters, and this is what comes next, that it becomes possible to abandon raga, dosa and moha. To be able to abandon the three kilesas, the three roots. Sometimes, and this is a very important point, sometimes we wonder how do we overcome raga, uh, desire, craving, attachments. How do we overcome ill will? How do we overcome delusion, moha, the three defilements, the three kilesas? And it's a very important point to know that you cannot overcome these things until you've overcome all these things which come before. You have to do things in order, in sequence. Your job with regard to raga, dosa, moha, the three kilesas, is to restrain them. Your job is to have Hiri and Otapa towards them. Your job is to contain them with your sealer so they don't go out of bounds. 
your job is to weaken them through your love of associating with pure people, Aryas, of good sila, of few defilements. Your job is to uproot them through sati, sampajanya and samadhi. Not to uproot them, sorry, but to, to weaken them. They say these are five hindrances which nourish a delusion. When those five hindrances are weakened, then delusion is starved. And so is raga, dosa and moha, the three kilesas. <coughs> but the only way to fully overcome them is to perfect right view, the right view of the stream winner. Only then can raga, dosa and moha be overcome. Otherwise it is impossible. So I was saying to someone recently, as long as you have a hand, you'll always be picking up things because that's what a hand does. As long as you've got wrong view, there will always be raga, dosa and moha. There will always be craving, there will always be sensuality, there will always be ill will, anger towards oneself or others. There will always be delusion. All coming from the illusion of self, me, mine. Picking up comes from having a hand. And that's in that simile which I've given so many times before. It's only when you can cut off the hand, destroy it, uproot it, only when you've got no hand will there be no picking up. Only when the illusion of self has been completely uprooted, destroyed and it's not no longer there, can there be an end of craving? Can there be an end of ill will? Can there be an end of delusion? And that's precisely what this sutta says. From the perfection of view attained by the stream winner, there comes the ending of raga, dosa, moha. In the framework of the vipalasas, from right view, perfected view, then the wrong perceptions, the perception of <coughs> things being worthy to be craved. Why do you crave things? Because you perceive that there's some value to be gained through possessing those things. Why do you crave that sweet, that food? Because you think there's something to be gained through eating that, through having it. Just a little bit of reflection, a little bit of wisdom would say, what is there to be gained by that? Very little indeed. A moment of pleasure and it's all gone. Nevertheless, we very rarely question what's there to be gained. If we can question that, especially if we realize that there's no owner there anyway, there's no self, there's no me. All craving ends with the dissolving of this self idea. When there's no hand, there's nothing to grasp. When there's no me inside there, there's no one to want. There's nothing to possess. There's no possessor. When the screen of the television disappears, how can any image 
appear on that screen. This is what one is doing. One is overcoming the defilements through overcoming the illusion of self. And it's only when the defilements are overcome, the three kalesas of Lopa Dosa Moha, only then can old age, sickness and death be overcome. The old age, sickness and death, the suffering of life. If you wish to overcome old age, sickness and death, all the medicines which you are taking, all the exercises which you are doing, all of your hopes and dreams and fantasies will not be able to overcome that problem. That you will be suffering so many more old ages, so many more sicknesses, so many more deaths. Have you not had enough of old age through so many lifetimes? Haven't you had enough of sickness even in this lifetime, let alone counting previous lifetimes? Haven't you had enough of death? That can only be overcome through abandoning Raga Dosa Moha, the three Kalesas. How do you overcome those three Kalesas? By overcoming the first three fetters, the wrong view of self. How do you overcome the wrong view of self and become a stream winner? You do that through the work of the mind which goes to the source, through following the right path through samadhi. How do you develop those? Through sati, sampajanya, and and uh, again through a concentrated mind. How do you develop those? Through the love of being with Aryans, hearing their teachings, and giving up the fault-finding mind. How do you do that? Giving up coarse restlessness, giving up restraining oneself and keeping a good precepts. How do you do that? Through developing faith, through respect and through giving up idleness. How do you do that? Again, through uh, giving up disrespect, being easy to teach, having good friends, 